Throughout the season of Lent, the 40 days preceding Easter, many of us at Mount Nebo have been reading the Gospel of Mark in its entirety. Mark is, by I think general scholarly consensus, regarded to be the first of the four Gospels to be written. It has a uh, rather abrupt ending. Virtually all Bible scholars agree that verse 8 is where the best, oldest manuscripts of Mark's Gospels end. There is some debate about whether that was the original ending as Mark intended, or maybe the last page was somehow lost. Not uncommon in the ancient world, but uh, I am one of those who thinks that, no, as, as you're about to hear it, this is the way Mark intended it. Mark and all four Gospels, all, all the Gospels have different tellings of the Easter story, different stories associated with Easter. But they all agree that women or a woman were the first witnesses to the resurrection on Easter morning. And so it is with Mark. To, to get a little bit of a running start at the Easter story, the women are mentioned on Good Friday as witnesses to the crucifixion. In chapter 15, verse 40, some women were watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger one, and Joseph and Salome. Later in that chapter, in the last verse of chapter 15, we are again told that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was buried. They were at some distance. They witnessed the crucifixion. They then witnessed the hasty taking of the body just as the Sabbath was about to begin and it was forbidden to come in contact with the dead body on the Sabbath. So they were rushing to get the body of Jesus, to claim it, get permission from Pilate to take it down and to get it in the tomb before night fell and the Sabbath began. After this verse, the very next verse begins the Easter story, beginning in chapter 16. After, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe, seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look! Here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were terrified. This is the word of the Lord.
I don't know about you, but to many of us, that strikes many people as a kind of a strange ending to the Easter proclamation. Overcome, terror, dread, fled, afraid. These are not the emotions that we typically associate with the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has overcome the power of sin and death forever. But that is the gospel as we have it, as Mark wrote it. Now, it wasn't long before various copies just could not leave well enough alone and some additional longer endings were added to Mark's gospel. Uh, sometime probably in the late 2nd, early 3rd century, we believe. And of course, in Matthew and Luke and John, you have all these other beautiful stories about the risen Lord with Mary in the, in the garden near the tomb, or Jesus coming through locked doors and showing himself to the disciples, or, or to Thomas saying, see, it's really me, put your hands in the fingers, or that beautiful story in Luke's Gospel about the appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We have none of that in Mark's Gospel. All we have was that they go to the tomb expecting to finish the burial preparations for a dead body. And when they got there, there was a man robed in white, presumably an angel, who gives them the the proclamation, the good news. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but He has been raised. Go and tell His disciples, especially Peter, that He's going ahead of you into Galilee, just as He said. And overcome with terror and dread. Other translations add trembling. They fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. The end. If that strikes you as an odd Easter message, I would suggest, and it does to me as well, although I have come personally to find that Mark is perhaps my favorite gospel and my favorite Easter story for reasons we'll get to eventually, but if if you find that an odd ending to the gospel and an odd Easter story, I would suggest that it is Probably because we have so domesticated Jesus and tried to, to make him accessible and well, you know, all that, that language about being raised, that, that's metaphorical, symbolic language. And, and we've turned Jesus in our own hearts and minds as a culture into a very into Mr. Rogers, basically, into a very non-threatening sort of person who just, I love you, you love me, and everybody's happy. We've done that because I think we can't deal with the real Jesus. And we're afraid to let the real Jesus deal with us. Look back over the course of Mark's Gospel at the responses that people had to Jesus, to the things that He said and did. And two sets of words keep popping up again and again. And when you see these words, then perhaps the ending shouldn't be as shocking or surprising as it is to most of us. As far back as chapter 5, 
uh, the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. And after they began to go away, he, he the, the now healed demoniac, went into the, the capitalists, the ten cities, to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. I would suggest to you that we have, by and large, lost the capacity to be amazed by Jesus. He has become so familiar. And frankly, we have dumbed down so much of what he said and did. And really worked hard to domesticate Jesus that our capacity for amazement is largely diminished. Moving on later in chapter 5, after they crossed back the other side of the sea, that one of the leaders of the synagogue came to Jesus and his daughter was dying and Jesus went and put everyone out of the house and brought the girl back to life. And they tell us in chapter 5, verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began to walk about and she was 12 years of age. And at this, they were overcome with amazement. Not just amazed, they were overcome with amazement. Then uh, moving on into chapter 10, we mentioned this one last Sunday. This is as they, Jesus is leading them. They've just come up over the crest at the Mount of Olives, approaching Jerusalem for what we know as Holy Week. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed at what Jesus has been saying. Even the disciples, the inner circle. Or in chapter 12, when he is being confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests in the temple because of some of his teaching, and the question about whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar comes up and Jesus gives him the answer, well, show me the money. You, you, you thought that was Jerry Maguire? No, that was Jesus. Show me the money. And he saw Caesar pointed out that the money had Caesar's head on it. It, shouldn't have, it was an idol in the temple anyway. They were busted. But Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. And when he is being questioned before Pilate, Pilate, the corrupt, pagan, Roman governor, Jesus said what he had to say, and when he made no further reply, Pilate was amazed. But there's another emotion that runs as a connecting thread throughout Mark's Gospel as well. Back to the story of the Gerasene demoniac. I love this one. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. This man who just before Jesus had shown up was ranting and raving and wailing and beating on people and cutting himself with stones and was so almost superhuman strength that they couldn't bind him, not with ropes, not even with chains. That they could deal with. But now when he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind, that was new. At that, they were afraid. I don't know if this is where the phrase better the devil you know comes from, but it could have been, should have been. The new reality was more frightening than the man who was possessed by a legion of demons had been. But that's not the only place. The, uh, back to the approach 
over the Mount of Olives. Yes, they were amazed, but they were also afraid because of the things that Jesus was telling them that was going to happen this week in Jerusalem. That they were, la la la, we can't hear you, we don't want to hear. But even so, at some level they were getting it and they were afraid. Or when the chief priests and scribes heard the things that Jesus was saying in the temple, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. How many of the atrocities committed throughout human history have been motivated by this same fear, this same emotion? Fear. Fear of the other. Fear of the one who is different. Fear of the one who is not like us, who might, in a zero-sum world, if, if they gain, then we've got to lose. Fear of the other has pushed the chief religious leaders of the day to plot Jesus' death. And how many times down through the centuries has fear produced such sinful atrocities? When Jesus is further verbally sparring with the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, they, they ask him where he gets the authority to say and do what he's saying and doing. He responds with, well, where'd John the Baptist get his authority? And they got to huddle and, well, what are we going to say? It's a trap if we say this. But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd. For all regarded John as a prophet. Again, Fear driving people's behaviors. Or a more extreme but related word, when Jesus was walking on the water, the storm at sea, the disciples were in the boat, they were afraid they were going down. Even though they were seasoned professional fishermen, they were used to boats and water. Jesus comes to them walking on the waves and they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Or as they were descending after Jesus was transfigured right there in front of Peter and James and John as they were coming down off the mountain. He, Peter, who's usually the one who speaks up and says something, puts his sandal in his mouth, he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. A sense of holy awe and wonder and fear of the Lord is something that we have largely lost the capacity for in our scientific worldview age where there's no problem that we can't explain or manage with other means other than Supernatural, other than biblical or divine. And that's why we find the ending to Mark's gospel so troubling. The emotions just, just don't seem wrong. Is that how you end the story? And that's why I think even within the first couple of generations, people just yeah, couldn't leave well enough alone. They had to, had to add that, and they lived happily ever after of Appearances of the resurrected Jesus to people. But I think Mark got it right. I think that it is precisely that kind of discomfort that Mark 
was seeking to generate in us. Because if you are feeling that kind of amazement and wonder, and yes, even fear, you're engaged. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. And you are left with the idea that the women were so afraid, they didn't tell anybody, well, obviously somebody told somebody something, or we wouldn't have the Gospels, but it's kind of the open question. It's it's kind of um, the way really exciting movies or particularly television shows that are in a series. Stay tuned next time. But sometimes Debbie and I will watch um, a TV series that we really like, uh, something like uh, Downton Abbey or Victoria on Masterpiece Theater, and we get a streaming on Netflix. And it's such a cliffhanger at the end that we end up binge watching several shows back back because you got to see what happens next. I think perhaps that's part of what Mark is doing here. He wants you to have that really, and then what happens? And of course, it's up to you to put yourself in the story and how do you respond and what are you going to do with it? But. The bulk of the story comes in the last two verses. The young man in the white robe, the angelic messenger, tells them, go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Now, scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written sometime between 66 and 70 A.D. The reason that range of dates is given, 66 is the year that both Peter and Paul were executed in Rome. And 70 was the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Peter's already dead before Mark writes his gospel. That may have been what occasioned Mark to write his gospel. So why? Tell his disciples, especially Peter. I think that Mark is inviting all of us to identify with Peter. If you've read Mark's Gospel recently, you will recall that after the Last Supper, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter and James and John with him. And he begins to tell them that they are all going to betray and desert him. And... He then goes on to say this this message that he's going ahead of you in the galley. He's told them this already back in verse 14. He has said to them, you're all going to betray me, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And it was just at this point that Peter begins to bluster. Oh, no way, Lord. All these other losers, they may betray you. They may desert you, but Never me. Well, give Peter's due. At least he's following at a distance once Jesus is arrested. But at a safe distance. While he is in Pilate's judgment hall, being questioned and beaten, Peter is hanging around as close as he dare get outside and he's warming himself at the fire. Jesus had told him after his bluster, but before the cock crows, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. Sure enough, someone says, hey, you look, didn't I see you with him? Weren't you one of his disciples? Who, me? No, you, you must be mistaken. It must have been somebody else. 
someone else. Yeah, yeah, you were. I saw you. Were. No, it wasn't me. You've got the wrong man. A third one speaks up. But you've even got that hillbilly accent like those Galileans. Of course it was you. And Peter begins to curse violently. It wasn't me. And at that very point, the rooster crows. And Peter is crushed with guilt and shame. And although Mark doesn't say so, he has no doubt been crushed with guilt and shame throughout the rest of Thursday night, throughout the day Friday as Jesus is crucified and dies on the cross. All day, all, all night Friday is the Sabbath God. All day Saturday the Sabbath through the night. But even so, the angel says, Go and tell his disciples, and especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you in the Galilee. And you'll see him there just as he told you. I think Mark is inviting us to identify with Peter. Peter, whatever feelings he and Jesus had to have to, to iron it out and make it okay between them, that's already been done by the time Mark's writing his gospel. But we all, have things in our lives where we know that we've not been the people that God has called us to be. That we've dropped the ball. That we've messed things up. That we have in ways big or small denied Jesus and not lived as His disciples. And I think Jesus is saying to each of us, put your name, fill in the blank instead of Peter. You know, it's it's... Dave, or it's Jeff, or it's Sherry, or tell Dave, or Jeff, or Sherry, or or you, or me, that it's okay. He understands. He forgives. He still wants you as a disciple. He still has things that you can do. And that He's going ahead of you into Galilee. And you will see him there just as he has told you. It is to that announcement that the women respond. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. The prospect that, okay, back to the beginning. Galilee was home base. Galilee was where Jesus had called the disciples. Galilee was home for virtually all of them. And I, I agree with N.T. Wright when he says that you know, oftentimes today we try and explain away the resurrection as merely symbolic or just a metaphor. But he says the women wouldn't have been so terrified if they'd merely had a new heartwarming spiritual experience. They wouldn't have run away in panic just because in their heart of hearts they had suddenly come to believe that Jesus was somehow there with them. That His cause would continue. That His teaching would stand the test of time. None of that would account for the terror that they felt. It wasn't just a subjective experience in their hearts and their feelings and their emotions. 
Wright goes on to say that all these are things that people have said in the misguided effort to avoid what the New Testament writers are saying. But the word resurrection simply doesn't and didn't mean any of those things. It means raised from the dead. And we can't soft pedal or sugarcoat that. that. That to me, the fact that it is the women who are the witnesses, and the response they make are the best arguments that this is an account of an event that somebody experienced. If it was something that somebody had made up, the witnesses wouldn't have been women. Because sadly, in that culture, which was thoroughly chauvinistic, women were not regarded as credible, faithful witnesses. If you're going to make up a story, you would have had men who could actually testify in a court of law who would have been the witnesses. And if it had just been some subjective heartwarming experience, the response wouldn't have been terror and dread and amazement. But if Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead, then this isn't someone who's just added a a happy ending to what had been a very tragic story. It is a new beginning. And everything that we once thought we could count on about how the world works and what we need to do to get along in it has been turned on its head. As Charles Campbell puts it, Jesus is loose in the world. He's not in our present as a lifeless corpse or in our past as a distant memory. Rather, He goes ahead of us into the future to meet us there and claim us, not on our own terms, but on His. We can no longer deal with Jesus as a dead body, safely buried in a tomb. But now we encounter Him as a living reality. There is no escaping Him, no containing Him, no forgetting Him. Business as usual is no longer safe. Because Jesus goes ahead of us to call us to discipleship again and again. Business as usual is no longer an option. Hence the fear and the dread. Oftentimes when people are grieving the loss of a loved one, bad people come to me with great feelings of guilt. Because amongst all the other negative emotions that they're feeling of grief and loss, Oftentimes, particularly if the loved one had a long illness leading up to their eventual death and the loved one was a caregiver, there's also a sense of relief that the person feels guilty about. You know what? Why should I, a good person feel any relief when my dear beloved mother, brother, father, whomever has died? And yet the relief is there because they sense that the future is not going to be the same as the past. Their future is no longer going to be defined by all the the freely taken upon, but obligation is nonetheless a caregiver. Something not the same, but similar is going on here. It was 1964 on a frosty fall morning in Memphis, Tennessee. The civil rights movement was in its heyday. A bunch of college students had gone to a training that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference put on. Reverend James Lowry was training them in nonviolent means of protest. 
And the plan for the day was that interracial mixed groups of college students were going to go to all white segregated churches that Sunday morning together and worship as a means of protest, as a means of taking the cost of discipleship seriously. Now, bear in mind the churches that they were going to be going to were the ones attended by the most powerful people in the city. The doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, the police, the judges, the professors at their university. And in this, the case that I'm familiar with, there were two white students who were standing on the street corner that morning waiting for an African-American colleague who attended another school to join them, and together they were to go to this all-white segregated church to worship that morning. They waited, and they waited, and for reasons unbeknownst to them or to me, their colleague never showed up. And they decided, well, that's not going to happen. So they, with some great sigh of relief, off the hook, decided they were going to go to a church, the church they regularly attended, where they knew what to expect and knew that they would be welcome and there would be no threats. Imagine how you would have felt if you were in their shoes, if, if just as you were beginning to leave, you got the message that your friend has gone ahead of you and he's waiting for you there on the steps of the church that you were originally supposed to go to. Don't. <clears throat> Now the future has other demands of me. That's what Easter is about. Once Jesus is raised from the dead, He is the Lord, not just of the past, but more importantly of the present and of the future as well. Therefore, it's not just baskets and eggs and jelly beans. It's being called again the discipleship, to the way of the cross by the one who has gone through death, conquered it forever, and come out the other side, creating a new future for you and for me. Thanks be to God. Let us confess our faith together with this Easter confession. This is good news, as it has been proclaimed to us, which we have received and in which we stand, and through which we are saved. We hold firmly to the message as proclaimed to us, because we have not believed in vain. This is our confession of Easter faith. What we received of first importance is that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried on the third day raised, on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And He continues to appear, as He did later to the Apostle Paul, and also to us. Jesus speaks directly in our hearts, acts in our lives, and is made manifestly visible in the lives of those we love and live among and with whom we share this place of worship. By the grace of God, we are what we are, and the grace of God given to us has not been in vain. 
On the contrary, thanks to the grace of God that is in us, we take joy working for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we proclaim this good news so that the world shall come to believe. Amen. Where is Galilee? He's going ahead of you into Galilee and he'll meet you there just as he said. Galilee is here. Yes, Edie's absolutely right. On the map, it's to the north of Judah. But Galilee is home. Galilee is the workaday.